0: One Man Searches for Intelligent Conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to YDHTY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome and if you like what you hear today be sure to follow ydhty on your podcast player of choice and tell one friend you think might like it too this podcast grows as we say every week by word of mouth now for the past couple of weeks we've learned about china's ambitions to internationalize its currency and challenge if not replace the dollar and how the history of global currencies tells us this might be a tall order. And I'd strongly recommend listening to the last two episodes if you have not already. Now this week, we take a broad look at the role the dollar has played in the last 70 years of globalization, who've been the winners, who've been the losers, and what it looks like when all of this falls apart. Now, my guest today, Bob Swarup is a macro commentator, speaker, and a PhD in cosmology because macroeconomics, as we all know, gets a little tedious at times. And he's also the author of Money Mania, Booms, Panics, and Busts, a book that documents 25 centuries of financial crises. And I invited Bob to discuss what impact dollar dominance has had on the state of the world today And what history tells us about how this looks when it all unwinds. And this conversation put together a number of disparate thoughts I've had rolling around in my head, which I'm going to attempt to synthesize at the end of this episode. Until then, listen to the smart guy and learn. I remember hearing about how the ancient Greeks calculated the circumference of the earth. And you, you must know this story where they they dug a hole and they put a pole in it and they did one in I think it was Alexandria in Egypt and then one in Greece, maybe Athens or somewhere around there. And and that and using that, using the angle of the sun, they were able to figure out that the earth was round and they were able to figure out the circumference of it and everything. And it it almost seems like that's We're doing that equivalent in physics now when we dig into the origins of the universe.
1: I think we always have done that. You know, if you look at, you know, I mean, look, a conversation we're about to have right now, okay, which is in finance, of course, is we are taking present day events. We're taking a few little facts that are scattered from history. And we're trying to weave that into our kind of view of where things might evolve, right? We're kind of making predictions. And physics was all about that. I mean, when I was studying the early universe, the one thing I remember was that everyone I knew usually had three models of the universe going at once. <laughs> because they sort of knew that it was all conjecture and what you were working on could easily be wrong. So you may as well just, you know, have another couple of models as backup. <laughs> because, you know, fundamentally, I mean your, your philosophy was that all models were flawed. You know, all you could do was come to an approximation that was ever closer perhaps to what reality might be but you were never really ever gonna get
0: there. Yeah, well, I can see your how you gravitated towards economics then, which is an equally dark art, it seems. And, uh, you know, it, it's very rare that I shift to the subject of macroeconomics, and that actually represents the more lighthearted portion of the conversation, but here we are <laughs> 10 minutes in. Um, I, I wanted to I, I wanted to start off the the conversation around dollar hegemony and the effects of dollar dominance with a quote that you've quoted a couple times in a few of your works that I've read, which is by American journalist Lidwell da- Danny, and he said and and in, in speaking of the oh. um, the Bretton Woods agreement and or the agreement that made the dollar the central currency of the, the global economy, or at least of the, the free world, so to speak. He said, we shall not make Britain's mistake. Too wise to try to govern the world, we shall merely own it. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Denny's book actually was called America Conquers Britain. It's, it's, the, the line is taken from that book. In a sense, it tells you what he's talking about. And he actually wrote that book in 1931. Uh, just as the Great Depression was there uh, was a couple of years in. Uh, and in fact, what he was writing about was actually the fact that um, he saw the US taking over um, from Britain. It was, it was a very prescient book in many ways, because what he was really talking about the fact was, was that over the 1920s, as Europe had come out of the First World War, Britain, France, all these kind of grand old countries of the previous century, were saddled with enormous amounts of, you know, debt, uh, you know, ruin, burnt-out infrastructure, etc. And they needed to rebuild all of that. That meant that they needed someone to finance all of it. And the U.S. almost stepped into that. The U.S. became the lender to Europe. You know, I mean, if you look at the 1920s, the 1920s really were uh, all about the debt dynamics that Europe went through as it tried to kind of come its way out of the First World War. And pay off what was ultimately a, a level of debt that they just could not ever get out of. That showed that the US had much bigger muscle than Britain. So whereas Britain may have had armies and empires and things like that. And by the way, in the 1920s, even the early 30s, those empires were still there. You know, Britain still had India and it had large parts of Africa and so on. The reality was, was that the power was shifting actually westwards to the States. And the reason was because the states did not necessarily have land or empires or things like that but actually what the states did have was money and what denny kind of realized was that there was a financialization of our society underway and whoever controlled the money ultimately controlled the world and what he was simply talking about was the fact that his, his thing was almost like a manifesto of what america should be doing and his whole point was that he did not think america should be out there empire building what they should be there is be at the bankers of the world, you know, be the money man because then you effectively own the world and the world is always in hock to you.
0: Yeah. That, so it, it's, it's interesting you say that too, because one of the things I picked up digging through your work was how the period encompassing world war one and world war two, let's say, really represented a breakdown of this global economic model that where, where land or territory effectively equaled economic growth. And it was really sort of an era of, of empire.
1: Globalization, you know, I think we always think as a very recent phenomenon, right? I mean, for most people, mm-hmm. if you ask about globalization, it began in, the 50s or 60s, you know, post the Second World War, and it's been getting better and better ever since, right? We've got the internet, we have, you know, international travel, we've got supply chains all over the place, etc. And most people, even in this current time, would argue that globalization still could never truly reverse, right? I think if you go back through history, I have what you find is that there are actually cycles of globalization, what I would call a deglobalization. I'll explain what I mean by those in a moment. And most globalization is driven ultimately by exogenous growth, in other words, growth in in terms of interacting with outside parties. And that could be, by the way, just simply conquering and getting more and more land. It could also be just through consuming more and more and having more and more trade. It doesn't really have to be one or the other. You know, I'll give you a very simple analogy, is if you look at the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire actually reached its peak Around about probably sort of 180 to 190 AD, because that was because the Roman Empire is a very classic example of their economy kept growing as long as they kept conquering more and more territory. Because as they did, they effectively got more and more tribute in, more and more gold in, etc. Once they reached the maximum size of the empire, and then they began to slowly lose land bit by bit, in reality, from there on in, it was in decline. Now the crisis of the Roman Empire didn't occur, by the way, till a hundred years later. And you know, but actually, if you look at, for example, simple evidence, like for example, you can look at shipwrecks in the Mediterranean, and you will find that shipwrecks in the Mediterranean actually peak around about the end of the second century AD and then begin a decline, which shows you that Rome's power was ebbing in very simple financial terms after that. And it was actually already declining. I mean, bear in mind that. You know, I think we always have this human thing. We love things to happen fast, right? But things actually happen much more slowly. Uh, And, you know, and when an empire starts to decline, it actually declines very often. The seeds of it are sown several years beforehand, if not decades beforehand. And it slowly starts to play out. Um, If you look at that, period in the two world wars, that really was the unwinding of a colonial mindset where effectively you had grown by taking on more and more empires. And you were basically using those empires, not, not dissimilar, just external kind of outsourced, you know, sort of labor, right? Where you were using them to create lots of goods and shipping them back in, selling your stuff It was a virtuous circle. What it also, however, was emblematic of was two or three other things that people don't always think about. It wasn't just that at some point they'd grown too much and they had to reverse. I mean, growth doesn't work that way. The point is that what actually happened also was that that growth comes with it, with enormous amounts of societal tension. Right? There's inequality. There's different views of where you're going. You know, people start to become more and more partisan, and that starts to come through in huge tensions within society that also lead to, to growth becoming you know more and more inward-looking. You also start to have, by the way, increasingly conflicts between countries because they have different views. Of what growth means for them and then in many ways if you look at globalization and its opposite of deglobalization there is perhaps a fallacy that people have where they tend to look at them in very simplistic terms one is growth and one is somehow going backwards and being negative right i mean if you talk to somebody about deglobalization they initially think of some financial car crash they think of you know us all going back to the stone age and it's all doom and gloom etc i mean let, let me take one step back and just define these terms, okay? Globalization is a very, very poorly defined term. So I'm gonna give you one definition of it, which is let's define it in purely simply economic terms. And the way I would define it is, is that globalization is where basically you are interacting more and more with the world financially, okay? In other words, you're trading more and more. So if I look at that in very simple GDP terms, GDP is my my growth and GDP is my growth, three, four, 5% each year if the proportion of it that is due to international trade is growing faster than my growth in GDP, in other words, trade is becoming a bigger and bigger part of my growth, that to me is globalization, okay? That automatically also, by the way, gives me a definition of deglobalization, which means that if I am growing, but the contribution to my growth from international trade is declining as a proportion that to me is deglobalization. In other words, I'm interacting less and less with the world and I'm focusing more and more inwardly, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what's important Mm -hmm. to note with these definitions is two things. The first is that deglobalization does not mean no growth or negative growth. It means growth. It just means slow growth normally because normally if you're interacting with other people, that tends to give you some accelerant to your growth. The second thing, however, also is that implicit within it, is the fact that society or an economy, and usually it's a society driving an economy, has become inward looking. In other words, they're still growing, but they're growing now through internal dynamics, through looking inwards and so on. That means their world is shrinking, their world is getting smaller, and therefore their ability to interact with the rest of the world is hampered. Their ability to, you know, make compromises to, to come up with agreements to be multilateral in effect, starts to decline. Now, if you define globalization in that sense, what you will find is that the 1920s and 30s fit that very well yeah. as a period where that was happening. And that was due to you know a big war that had occurred, which actually catalyzed for people a huge overhang in debt that needed to be worked out of a system It catalyzed a huge kind of rush for growth, where basically it was every man or every country for himself, you know, they just wanted growth at all costs. It also brought to the fore significant societal tensions where people felt that they had missed out on growth, right? I mean, globalization has a huge number of benefits. The fact we're sitting here on the internet having a podcast is one benefit, right? The mm-hmm. fact that you can order something and Amazon will deliver it guaranteed within two days wherever you are is another benefit. The fact that you know, thanks to China being the great deflator, we managed to get cheaper and cheaper goods for 30 years is yet another benefit, right? These are all benefits of globalization. We very rarely talk about the dark side of globalization. And you have to remember that where there's growth in any form, there is a dark side to that. And if people don't appreciate that, that is what ultimately leads to deglobalization. And these cycles are cycles of society that play out, not over periods of years, but periods of decades. I mean, if I was to define these cycles in very broad terms, you kind of have a globalization 1.0 that kind of went from, let's say, 1865, 1870 through the beginning of the First World War. You had globalization, deglobalization, one, as it were, that went from the First World War through the Second World War. And then you had globalization, two, what we think of globalization, which began post the Second World War, perhaps late 40s or early 50s, as rationing comes to an end and carries on. The thing is, I would argue that globalization, as we think of it, actually ended more or less after the financial crisis. You know, I say 2010, I mean, the real date might be two or three years either way, it doesn't really matter. But it finished at that point. And actually what we've seen for the last coming on to a decade now, perhaps longer, actually has been a gradual playing out of a deglobalization dynamic that is still quite early in its infancy. I mean, I mean the, the tragic thing is that we talk about these things as things that you know we can fix quickly, they're not. I mean, if this deglobalization dynamic plays out the way it always has historically, you probably have 20, 30 years of deglobalization left before the pendulum okay. goes back the other way.
0: What, what triggers that path towards deglobalization? Is there a common catalyst? Is there something you can, you can... Is there a common event you could see, like, for example, in the start of World War I and the financial crisis that we can latch on to?
1: So I think events like World War One or whatever are catalysts, right? They don't necessarily create the problem. They uncover the problem that's already built up, okay? So if I go back to that period in the two world wars, people always talk about the Great Depression in 1929, right? And that seared itself in American cultural consciousness and a lot of the world as well. What people have forgotten is that prior to that, There was another depression which was also called the great depression which occurred back in the 1870s and actually lasted for about 20 years by some measures and that was renamed subsequently to being the long depression right and there's a lot of debate about that particular depression because that depression was where the us and most of the world went through a whole period of rapid growth due to automation right so factories were suddenly coming in you know, people were producing stuff in a much more mass production sort of way. Cars came in, planes came in, et cetera, right? It was phenomenal growth. I mean, this was the VC phase of the 19th century, right? And at the same time, and the reason why there's this debate about was it uh, a depression or not is because actually there was growth. There was a hell of a lot of growth. What actually was happening was that that growth was driving down the price of stuff so much that there was also a significant deflation at the time. Right? because things were getting cheaper and cheaper. I mean, deflation isn't a bad thing. There's good deflation and there's bad deflation. Right, China, for example, no one would call bad deflation. The fact that China made everything cheaper and cheaper for 30 years was good deflation as far as most consumers were concerned. So that late 19th century was not dissimilar in this regard. And what happened, however, was, was that as that happened, there were huge changes happening in society. I mean, large part of society suddenly found that jobs disappeared, right? entire segments of society were wiped out. I mean, a very simple example is your domestic servant, right? I mean, bear in mind that your domestic staff was a big, big part of employment in 19th century Europe and 19th century US, right? Now, suddenly, when you're starting to invent labor-saving devices, well, guess what? Who needs to hire people to do this stuff for you, right? You can dispense with that. Now, those people, sure, an economist will tell you they'll find new employment side, you will create new jobs, the new paradigm will find something else for them to do. Fantastic. It will. However, it will take probably 10 to 20 years to do that. And the interim, that person who has to live day to day, year to year, has no job and is feels that they've basically gotten out on the wrong side of the trade. Right? Well, there's all this growth, but where is it? I can't see it. It's not coming through to me. Another example, because of all this pressure of automation you had in the late 19th century significant wage deflation. So wages in real terms were declining, right? Which by the way, some is something that every worker in America, in Europe, in most countries in the world can relate to over the last 20, 30 years, that they feel <laughs> that the cost of living keeps going up because their wages don't keep up, right? Their ability to have pricing power it their wages has declined. Right. And that also meant that there were significant portions of society that even though they may have been benefiting in terms of labor saving devices, cheap stuff coming through, you know, restaurants opening, etc., they also felt that they were perhaps missing out. Right. So these tensions are part of what I think people don't realize play out very, very slowly. And, And you can see them playing out in the late 19th century where you know, the U.S. has various scars that you can see. So a very good example actually is Chinatown, right? Every U.S. city has a Chinatown. What most people don't realize is that those Chinatowns more often than not were born effectively as ghettos. So actually what happened was the U.S. had, the Chinese were the big enemy for the U.S. in the 19th century because the U.S. had this huge wave of Chinese immigration. And it became hugely problematic and a huge political issue in the 19th century to the extent that the U.S. ended up effectively restricting the Chinese and really stripping away the ability for them to come out en masse to the country. That led to Chinatowns, right? That's a scar from that period. You know, that whole kind of cross of gold, et cetera, and those kind of big emotive speeches at the end of the 19th century are all about that. The financialization of society, by the way, also plays a part in this, because when people see financialization occur, that inevitably creates inequalities, right? Some people have a lot more money, some have a lot less. That financialization is very natural, I would argue, because you're driving capital towards investment. Unfortunately, as you drive that capital towards investment, some people make a lot of money out of it. That's natural, right? They're going to be traders, sure, but they're going to be entrepreneurs, they're going to be bankers, they're all making lots of money. So that have-have-not mentality gets accentuated. The other thing, of course, that financialization brings is debt. So the debt burden for many companies, et cetera, starts to rise. And the third thing, sorry, the other thing it brings is uh, volatility. So now suddenly you've got more money going up and down. People now start to worry about losing their shirt if the stock market crashes. They start to worry about you know financial crises. And so what you see in the early 20th century in the run-up to the First World War is actually a succession, a clustering of little financial crises that really kind of exacerbated for people this whole sense that the system wasn't working for them. You know? And then when you have this catalyst, like a First World War, it coalesces and it becomes, you know, a political movement where populism now steps in and starts to take you in a different direction.
0: You know, it's so funny. You- You say all this too, because, and this goes back to actually the first financial crisis, one of the things that I observed, and, and I'm not alone in this, are the similarities between the waves of technological innovation we had in the 90s and the early 2000s and even today, and this consolidation of wealth. So again to your point automation made a small group of people very very wealthy and made a certain group of people very well off it benefited a lot of people on the same token there were a lot of people left in the lurch and you see that uh with the with the internet and you see that same you see that playing out today do you feel then there's that effectively what we're what we're seeing right now is a mobilization of the have-nots, a mobilization of the people who've been left out of the last, you know, however many decades of innovation.
1: I think, you've been, I think you've been seeing that for the last decade or more now. I mean, you know, people sometimes talk about Donald Trump or Brexit, and they see them as these kind of aberrations, right? This, this ugly side that's coming through, and they're, they're, you mustn't let them get too far because they're going to change the nature of society, the fabric of our debate, etc., I would argue that Donald Trump and Brexit are laggards, not the vanguard. They reflect changes that have already occurred, and they simply have been taking advantage of those changes. If you talk about, um, I mean, in one of my papers, I talked about something called authoritarian populism, right? And um, perhaps let me let me take um, two steps back, okay? And let's go back to globalization and the masses. Economics as a discipline on many levels I think is extremely, extremely weak because it tries to leave out as many influences as it can. There was a time when economics used to think about politics and society and history and all these influences because they all influence financial markets. What's happened unfortunately over the last 50, 60 years is that because we sort of divorced the economy from all these influences and markets were, not really moved by much of this, you ended up in this strange world where no matter what was happening in politics or geopolitics or whatever, it didn't really impact the markets. And if you wanna see that cognitive dissonance in action, even today, although maybe the last few weeks might have changed it, but in general, the last few years, if you took any newspaper, the front page usually was fairly terrible news. You know, there's always something going on. There's some political storm, you know, some huge issues, whatever and the business pages, life had never been better, right? Mm-hmm. Apart from the open price of what it's right. life was fantastic, the businesses were booming, money was going, growth was good, China was gonna save the world. I mean, you know, it was two different worlds, right? And, and the thing is that cognitive dissonance was, was always there because the issue you have is that if you now look at globalization and how it works, it's about people and economics misses out that people perception or a factor. So if you take a politician, right? A politician is a person. They listen to votes and they listen to influences. Now, what are the key factors for a politician? I would argue that the key factors for any politician in any country, whether you're China, whether you're the US, whether you're Russia, whether you're India, whoever, there'll be two things. The first is your vote bank, right? your support base. That is your voters. That might be just the people you rely on for support if you're an authoritarian leader. Doesn't really matter. That's that's the first lot. And the second bit is what I would call external actors. And the external actors might be multilateral organizations like the UN, the World Bank, the IMF. It could also be allies, uh, the European Union, and it could also be, by the way, international finance, right, banks and so on. Now, here's the interesting thing. Most politicians, even in a democracy, only listen to the internal actors very, very occasionally, right? In effect, when an election comes around is when you listen to them, right? Everyone starts campaigning 12 months before, now they suddenly care about what the common man thinks, right? The internal the external actors are in their face all the time. They're constantly talking to their trade partners, to their allies to the markets, to multilateral relations. That's a constant dialogue that is happening every single day. Now, without being you know, cynical, Machiavellian, nothing, who are you gonna to listen to more? Who is it who's in your ear much more than the other side? So, you know, what happens is over time, your average politician embraces globalization much, much more than they listen to the tremors underneath if people find it's going the other way. And um, this is not just conjecture my part. There's a very good academic paper that was written about this a few years ago, which found that if you look at pretty much any country in the world, as a general rule, the uh, individuals or the population of that country was usually almost always slightly more left-wing and autarkic than the people in charge. Sometimes a lot more, sometimes slightly more. But when I say left-wing, I mean just ultimately more populist, more nationalist, more autarkic. The second thing we also found was that in that same thing was they found that the more it time went on, politicians became less and less sensitized to those underlying voices. They were more and more focused on external markets external influences. So what you can see is what you end up having is this creation of exactly what you will see by the way with Brexit and with Trump which is this perception that there is this elite at the top that sort of doesn't understand the base at the bottom. And the base at the bottom now wants to have a voice and it wants to be heard, and therefore it will now demand something. The issue you have is that politics is ultimately another form of entrepreneurship. They're They're political entrepreneurs all the time, right? And if somebody comes along and says, you know what, there's political capital to be made here, because there's this entire set of people who feel disenfranchised and I can give them that voice, then you know, guess what? You know, they'll flock to you. They may have aspects of you they don't like, but you know what? If you're giving them stuff that they think they're being ignored on, whether it is societal issues or monetary issues or whatever, then they care. I mean, in the French election, that's just happened, right? In the first round of polling, you know, Macron, who's the current president, got about 27% of the vote. Marine Le Pen, who represents the far right, you know, got about 23%. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who represents the hard left, almost quasi-Marxist, right? Um, got about 22% of the vote, right? So you had almost half the country voting for two extremes on the political spectrum, right? And that's something you'll see in history all the time. So if you go back to the 1920s, you look at the German parliament, you will find in the 1920s, a lot of votes went to communists, and to nationalists. And in fact, you know, people don't often say good things about the Nazi Party. But if you look at the Nazi Party, one of the interesting bits of political opportunism they did was to call themselves the National Socialist Party. Because one of the insights that Hitler had was that by calling himself the National Socialist Party, he could effectively capture both sides of that vote bank and bring them into himself. And the thing is that, you know, one of the big debates that Germany, for example, always has since the Second World War is how could a whole population fall in with this guy mm-hmm. and then let him do what mm-hmm. he did? I mean, where was the resistance? Where was the sort of, you know, thing where you said this, isn't, this can't be right? And the reason was because he was actually giving them a voice for things that they cared about. The fact that he had some unsavory things, like he didn't like juice and stuff, they kind of felt, well, maybe we can work that over time, or maybe he'll moderate over time. By the time they realized it was too late. He had fundamentally remade their society and had taken control. So this, this kind of authoritarian populism is what I call this, where you're a populist who effectively does a it's us versus them kind of, you know, 1% versus 99%, it's the dispossessed versus you know the liberal elite or whatever, you know, it doesn't really matter. They're all the same. It doesn't really matter if you're left or right. Your basic premise is that whatever the system has been, it's not working for you. We need to take charge, Mm -hmm. and we need to now rework the system. The problem with that is, and you've seen this in your country, is that as that plays out in both sides of the political spectrum, and I would argue the Democrats and Republicans are both equally guilty of this, your center totally gets wiped out. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Mm -hmm. Republican Democrats right now, you have... At the moment, a Republican Party that has gradually moved more and more towards the right in order to cater to that particular vocal sort of vote bank. And a Democrat Party that has also moved more and more towards a far more liberal ethos to cater to that. The centrists are the quiet majority majority in the middle who sort of don't get hurt and at some point they also start to get dispossessed and whoever makes the most compelling argument wins. Mm
0: It's, it's something we that I talk about a lot on this podcast as well because of the and you have the same electoral system in the UK as well, which is the first past the post system. And that is one that really encourages politicians, at least in the United States, where we have a two party tradition, uh, really encourages folks in either party to appeal to the partisan extremes. And as those extremes get more and more extreme, to your point. Those voices get louder and louder, and the moderates really become the villain, which is what's uh, which is what's going on today. Um, I want to use everything you said and kind of build on how we can use that to interpret what's going on now globally, and and I want you to either validate or, or challenge two assumptions that that I've had uh, about the way things are structured. The first is that we've had an exceptionally long period without any great power war in, ter- in historical terms. A- and I think part of that has to do with the fact that there is more to gain from being a partner with a- another country than an adversary. You look at China and the U.S. We're both ideologically at opposite ends. However, there's a mutual economic benefit that's kept us from uh, butting heads. Um, the second part of that is that that global economy is really built in large part on the US dollar. is built on the use of the dollar for uh, for for international trade. are the, Is that assumption correct? Are those assumptions correct, or is there are there some faults in there?
1: No, globalization has worked very well for a lot of people, right? I mean, if you look at China, even Russia, most countries, they've all benefited enormously. The US, Europe have also benefited enormously because by bringing more and more countries into the fold, they've derived very, very simple, straightforward economic benefits from it, right? It's it's a, it's a Ricardian equivalence, right? You're trading more and more. And as you do that, things become cheaper. Your growth is higher, by the way. Bear in mind with globalization versus de-globalization, growth is higher. If you look at the world as a whole, poverty levels in the world have declined significantly over the last 50, 60 years. You know, health outcomes have dramatically improved, right? I mean, there are many, many good things that have come out of commodity globalization of globalization, as you say. And that, that, is, that is undeniable. So the world has been founded on that. One thing you gotta remember is the reason why these cycles happen is because society comes to a realization as to what they think works in their best interests, or what they believe works in their best interests. And globalization, when you're coming out of, say, the Second World War, for a lot of people who are seeking growth, that is, you know, something that is extremely, extremely seductive. Bear in mind also when you came out of the 1970s, where you had inflation, you had a resurgence of geopolitics for the first time in a long time. And of course, you had significant civil unrest at the same time as well starting to occur. Globalization, again, provided a very soothing balm to all of that through the 80s, 90s, and so on, right? Because it meant that, you know, even as workers felt that their wages perhaps were not going up as much, things were going much cheaper. So nobody really cared, right? You know, people uh, loved the idea of new experiences, new travel. Um, You know, everyone has things to benefit from. The dollar has been a large part of that as well. If you go back to Denny's book, which we started off with, Denny's whole point was, was the U.S. should just own the world. And the U.S. did that very successfully because it probably did it the wrong way in the 1920s. And what in the 1930s is partly because they tried to approach it too much like a banker who just said, you know what, I'm lending you money now, pay me back, right? Whereas in the Second World War, after that finished, the U.S. unveiled the Marshall Plan which was a much cleverer way of doing it because the Marshall Plan effectively was one where you were working very collaboratively with all these countries to rebuild them. And you were developing so much soft power by giving them these loans, having, giving them financing, your corporations, your banks, all became embedded in the system. Your currency, which had already become very powerful over the last 20, 30 years because of a lot of the um, you know loans you had made, now really became the de facto standard, right? And Bretton Woods, of course, solidified that at the end of the Second World War or towards the end. Um, and the dollar has been the dominant system since then. It still is. And, and my people, of course, talk about empires and hegemonies and things like that. And we are, at the moment, in the dollar hegemony. Um, but in the same way that people perhaps don't look at the flip side and what are the kind of things that come out of that, I think in many countries, including the US, don't necessarily fully understand the implications of that hegemony as well. Mm. So, So to give you one very, very obvious and simple example, if you look at the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve is a central bank for the United States. Its mandate and its decisions are driven entirely by domestic considerations. It's constantly looking at what is happening with employment in the US, it is constantly looking at what's happening with inflation in the US and it's making these decisions accordingly, right? The problem is, is that when you're in a dollar-based global system, the Fed is also the central bank for the world, right? If they raise rates in the US, they make the dollar more expensive against other currencies. Now, if you're um, a foreign company that's borrowed in dollars, but your revenues happen to be in, I don't know, yuan or, you know, rupees or euros or whatever, well, your cost of borrowing just went up. That's got to have a frictional drag on your growth and other things like that. You know, If you look at emerging markets, I mean, this is a well-trodden path in um, sort of literature and, and pretty much anybody working in those will tell you, but emerging markets basically are very, very sensitive to the dollar because a lot of emerging market debt is dollar denominated. A lot of these countries, of course, have quite volatile currencies when the dollar gets strong the cost of borrowing goes up, I and mean, then many of them have issues coping with that, right? So, you know, you know, I guess to, to misquote Spider-Man, right, with, with great power, great responsibility, that the reality is that, you know, the U.S. runs an empire. It is a dollar-based empire. It is a money-based empire, but it's an empire. And when you have that empire, you have to think very carefully about all the tools that you have and how you use them, because everything you do has implications. And a lot of your growth depends on
0: that. Mm. And the world's really depended on on dollar liquidity to get out of the last financial crisis and really to get through the COVID crisis, correct?
1: Well, it's been dependent heavily on the dollar for a lot of stuff. I mean, the the, the Fed, I think, was critical to the last financial crisis. COVID was less so. COVID, COVID was much more driven by c- countries just basically going out and taking a checkbook and writing whatever it took. If you look at stimulus over the last couple of years with COVID, it was actually far in excess of what was done during the last financial crisis, you know, seven to nine. And and the reason being, because if you think about it as bailouts, in 2007 to nine, you bailed out the banks. In 2020 to 22, you actually were bailing out society, right? If you think of, you know, for example, what people did in terms of, you know, uh, wage guarantees, unemployment insurance, you know, loans to businesses, et cetera. I mean, you are writing much bigger checkbooks to a far greater portion of society, right? Um, though the problem with that is, is that, of course, the flip side is that all comes out in a huge growth in debt, which, as I pointed out, is one of the issues with globalization, that globalization means you're attracting more, attracting more, you means you're trading more, trading more means you borrow more. So a lot of those bailouts, increase the levels of debt and then globally now, your levels of debt are probably north of 300% of GDP. So, you know, these are levels where that debt needs to be somehow reduced. You know, there is there is a nebulous concept of debt and that debt only matters as long as you believe in it. But the reality is that debt also to some extent is growth you'd borrow from the future. So the more of it you have, the less growth you have in the future eventually. So that's also why managing it becomes important. I think the Fed has been very, very critical, but the Fed, I would argue, probably at this point now, is probably also quite powerless in the face of what's happened. You know, I mean, it's that whole point about economics and politics and society. You can't divorce them from each other. The Fed, fundamentally, is a monetary institution which has made its monetary decisions, it has flooded, you know, the markets with money when it needed to, with QE. It went and bought lots and lots of assets where it needed to. But the thing is, it can only do so much. The Fed's actions also arguably have been a huge driver of inequality over the last decade and a half. Um, And then I would say that there's reasonable evidence for that when you look at, for example, the impact on markets and so on. If you take a very simple analogy, let's just pretend you and I are both, you know, Ordinary people, right? I happen to have a thousand dollars in savings, right? You happen to have a million dollars in savings, okay? So you're a bit wealthier than I am. We both have the same income. Now, what happens is, is that, you know, if the markets keep going up and you invest your money, and I invest my money, guess what? Over time with compounding, you're just going to become wealthy and wealthy than I am, right? And the issue, of course, is when I take into account real world things, such as the frictional drag of everyday costs is higher on me than it is on you, the gap between us will keep growing over time. And then if I add in a third dimension, which is that when I pay my credit card bill and my mortgage and all the other things, well, guess what? Those pieces of debt I pay, they're actually somebody else's savings on another balance sheet or somebody else's assets on another balance sheet. So if you happen to have a lot of assets and you then actually you know, are investing those assets in bonds, for example, or in banks or whatever, those banks make nice profits or so those bonds give you a coupon. Well, you know, the money I'm paying on my debt here is sort of the interest that's coming to you on your bonds and your bank investment, things on the other side, right? There is no malice here. You are becoming wealthier than me just because the dynamics of debt and the way our society operates, right? And this is the issue. So, you know, when you when you have that, the Fed if it starts to do what it did like with QE, for example, I, I feel bad for the Fed. I mean, back in 07, 08, the Fed really didn't know what else to do, right? I mean, you needed to kind of flood the system of money, otherwise you were really terrified that everything might implode and that was gonna be truly catastrophic. So to avoid a catastrophe, you took a pretty bold decision and you did something that was unprecedented. You knew there may be consequences from it, but those consequences were further down the line and it was like a problem for another day, right? one of those consequences was going to be growing inequality, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for example, yeah. you remember all those protests about the 1% versus 99%, I mean, the fact that everyone hates bankers, right? Yeah. Like when I go yeah. traveling, right? You know, for example, when I go traveling, yeah. I, I never put down on my kind of visa forms, you know, financier or anything like that, right? Yeah. Know, I mean, the looks yeah. you get from the immigration person, there's is, is never a good one, right? You're better off putting down writer, or economist or something like that, that, that works much better, you know? But but those societal aspects are quite important. Um, but the dollar, you know, the Fed, as I said, at this point, the Fed has reached a conundrum, mm-hmm. right? If you look at the latest pronouncements from the Fed we're looking at inflation, they're sort of saying, well, we should be raising rates. you know. The problem is the politician on the other side is gonna be saying, no, 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 you can't do that right now. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we've got stuff going on. You know, the inflation, the cost of living, etc. you cannot raise rates. And the thing is, the Fed is not independent. There is a myth that central banks are independent. That is completely a myth. Central banks are independent only as long as the going is good. If the going goes bad, the central bank is not independent. I mean, who appoints the governors of the Fed, right? You know, I mean, these are all political appointments. You know, the Fed is not going to, by the way, turn around and do something that is gonna bring into huge conflict with another branch of government, either, right? You know, so so independence is is overrated here, yeah. you know. And then I think for most central banks, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't look to them for the bailout for this one.
0: Do you know the the, the interesting thing you said there, talking about how one person's debt is another person's savings, is it brought me back to uh, Alan Greenspan's book, The Age of Turbulence, and I, I read it probably close to fifteen years ago, probably longer, but. He was talking about how the Fed became less and less capable of influencing real borrowing costs. And a lot of that had to deal with the fact that you had a lot of foreign savings going into U.S. treasuries. Do you, do you feel in a way the internationalization of the dollar has led to a situation where now the, the U.S. and the Fed has really lost a certain bit of control over it?
1: Well, the Fed has been losing control steadily, right? Uh, I mean, you have, I mean, in many ways, they have significant, I mean, so I, I disagree with the point about a lot of foreign savings going to treasuries. That, in fact, enhances your global power, right? If you look at, for example, the amount of, you know, treasuries that, say, the Chinese hold, right? That power goes both ways. The Chinese may have a lot of holdings of treasuries that you have to take into account, but equally what you do with those treasuries in terms of the rates and paying back and stuff also matters hugely. And the U.S. you know, I think understands that soft power, which is partly why no one's ever made a big fuss about the Chinese having all these treasuries. What if the Chinese had to sell them all? The question is to who and for what, mm-hmm. right? The money mm-hmm. has to still flow into something and there aren't many places it can flow into. So. But I think where the, where the central banks are losing power is that certainly they have lost the ability to operate in a vacuum, as they have been up to now. You know. But where they're actually losing power is probably with the financialization of society in terms of the growth of the private markets. So you know, private equity, private debt, all these areas have grown enormously in size. Now, the issue with that is, is that if you think of what power the Fed actually has, I mean, most central banks, the power they have is actually very, very simplistic. They literally set a benchmark rate, right? And then they rely on the banks to reflect that benchmark rate change in their kind of borrowing costs and their lending costs. And they rely on people propagating that through the system, through to consumers and everyone else, right? If people don't do that, then you effectively neutered the central bank, Right. The other one is, of course, they can buy assets at infinitum, and of course, they can actually just issue money without any sanction whatsoever because they've got the power of printing in its essence. The, mm-hmm. the, the latter two powers though, I would say are, are harder in a politicized environment because they require you to ultimately take decisions that have significant political ramifications. And so that I think is much harder in today's mm-hmm. day and age. Yeah. Now, the growth of private markets, private markets are not linked to the benchmark rate, right? If I'm a private debt fund and I'm lending money to businesses, right, at, let's say, I don't know, 5 6%, I'm going to underwrite my loans based on what I the return I've promised my investors. I'm not going to change my loan based on the Fed cutting its rates or raising its rates by 3% or 5% or three basis points, five basis points. So the Fed has already lost power over what I do, yeah. right? If mm-hmm. I'm sitting there, by the way, And and you can see this, for example, if you look at, say, tech, where tech has been driven very much by a mentality of build it and they shall come, right? I mean, you know, the whole tech playbook is very simple. Let's just spend shed loads of money on marketing. Let's offer it for free or very, very cheap. And at some point, we'll scale up and we'll make money. That playbook works to a point. I mean, I don't know if Uber will ever make money, for example, right? I mean, it's very hard. I mean, I don't know if DoorDash and these guys can ever make enough money to justify the valuations they have. But tech was a huge beneficiary of central bank largesse. Borrowing costs were so cheap that people poured lots of money into VC and stuff. Now all that money went into VC is chasing a return that is not going to be satisfied if it drops just because the Fed cut its rates, mm-hmm. right? You know. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the interesting things is the more financialization you've had in society, the central banks ability to influence large parts of that economy have declined. And so their ability to control Actually, control borrowing costs, or to control inflation, or to control consumer behavior, is just that bit more limited. I don't think it's dramatically limited yet, but it is that bit more limited. And those changes, the margin, make all the difference. I mean, one of the things you got to remember is we we are in a world right now where you know this was a probability distribution. We're no longer in the center of this normal distribution, right? We live in the tails. It either all works out. Or it goes terribly wrong, and the reason is, is because we now live in a world which is probably driven much more now by policy than anything else. And if policy gets it right, we kind of muddle through. If policy gets it wrong, we have issues, right? And then that brings me circularly back to what you were about the dollar, because the dollar, I think, really because people don't understand the power of the dollar, there is a real risk of misusing it to the point that you end up hollowing it out. Um, And and that is something which I think, you know, there is things like the Fed I talked about, not understanding perhaps what the implications and actions are for the rest of the world, but also bear in mind that the use of tools like sanctions and so on are also Mm -hmm. a very, very area to tread carefully in, you know. I mean, if you look at sanctions, sanctions is your weaponization, it's the nuclear weapon, as it were, when you look at a dollar economy, right? This is you saying, I have the soft power because I control the currency that you guys are trading in. I can decide if you play or you don't play, right? And you know that's a very, very powerful tool. The problem is, is that if you use it too liberally and too often, it will lose its power. And you've got to remember that in the same way that Denny was talking about the Americans wanting to own the world versus the British, other countries have the same aspirations If you look at China's Belt and Road Initiative, how is that any different to the Marshall Plan? This is a country that is going out there and handing out billions and billions of dollars in loans to lots and lots of countries, and it does not actually care about the financial return. What it is doing is trying to make sure that it is deeply embedded into these countries' economies, because that is far more valuable to it than simply making a three or a 4% return today. Because the money or the power or whatever it will get out of that over the next 10, 20, 30 years, is far, far more attractive than the instant return on its money.
0: That that brings us to a really interesting spot, which is you know, we're we're currently we're currently seeing the effects of the sanctions levied against Russia for the invasion of Ukraine, and we're also seeing other countries have to make very hard calculations in terms of their allegiance to the dollar-based system. So China obviously has its ambitions to, uh, at the very least, insulate itself from the effect of sanctions. But there are other countries as well that really have to think hard about how they're going to continue to trade with Russia because they rely on them. Can can you talk a little bit about that and, and the impact that might play in eroding the power of the dollar?
1: Sure. I mean, look, let me, let me give you just a very simple analogy of how these things can go badly wrong anyway, which is Brexit, right? By every calculation on a rational basis, leaving Europe was a stupid, stupid, stupid idea, right? It's your biggest trading partner. You do very well out of it. I can tell you, as somebody who lives in London, traveling around Europe became just a little bit more complicated now. You know, trying to get goods shipped over from Europe to the UK is much harder now, and you have little, little annoyances, right? For example, um, there is, there is, there's been this kind of hollowing out of baristas and um, catering staff and waitressing staff in, um, in London, because a lot of them actually were Europeans, right? And they all disappeared, a lot of them disappeared when Brexit happened. Yet, Brexit happened, right? Every rational economic argument was it shouldn't happen, but it did. And it's because people concluded at some point that they would rather be out of Europe than in Europe, regardless of the benefits that Europe brought to them. And a big part of that was people playing up, at least, or populists playing up the fact that Europe was causing issues for Britain. Europe was re- holding Britain back, that being in the European system and living by European rules was somehow bad for British growth, right? And the British living up to their potential, you know, they could have had their empire 2.0 if only you know, they could get out of Europe, right? Um, the dollar is a bigger version of that same microcosm. You know, there's a lot of soft power there. Anybody who is in the dollar system benefits enormously. That's been the system of globalization, trade, et cetera. Um, if you now are forced to, you know, live also by the downside of that system, you start to worry. Now, if you look at Russia, I think sanctions on Russia at this point in time
0: are,
1: I don't want to say they're impotent, but they're not far off it. Because Russia already was under sanctions and the Russians were under sanctions when they went into Crimea and they were coming under a lot of, you know, kind of various bits and pieces over everything from Yukos onwards, right? So the Russians have had plenty of time to move parts of their economy away from the dollar. In fact, one of the things they did post-Crimea was the Russians had actually signed a tight energy deal with China. That was worth, if I remember correctly, about $400 billion, that was priced actually in yuan and rubles mm. and not in dollars, mm. right? So they were already diversifying their funding lines, their revenue lines, and so on, right? That doesn't mean sanctions won't hurt them. Sanctions could hit their economy extremely hard. But the reality is, is that you got to think about how most countries would look at this. You were invited to join a dollar based global system the WTO and everything else, because that was going to make you a citizen of the world and bring you growth and prosperity and so on, you know. Then because you started to do things that they did not like, you know, which you will see as an infringement of your sovereignty because ignoring the right and wrong of what Russia has done, Russia will see some infringement of its sovereignty. You and I are using the rules, that same system that you invited us into to strangle us, right? Why the hell would I want to be in this system? Mm. Right? So the Russians have already made their mind up to get out of that system. And now they've been just kicked out, but that's already simply emphasizing a point they probably reached internally anyway. If you're now sitting in, and, and, and in many ways, Russia, Ukraine, is something that's happening, it'll play out. The real problem now is China. If you're China, you know you have a different view of the world to the US. You also know that you would love to at least be an equal, you know, sort of force as the U.S. in the world, if not a dominant force, at least in your region. You are engaging in your own version of debt book diplomacy with the Belt and Road Initiative. You are clashing more and more with the U.S. on everything from intellectual property to technology to geopolitics, right? I mean, you know, I mean, let's face it, one of the few points of bipartisanship in the U.S is China. I mean, you know, they don't agree on much, but they all agree on China. So the issue you have is that if you're saying then China, and the thing is, they see Taiwan as part of themselves. Now, people may again have a debate about whether that's right or wrong, but they see Taiwan as being a province of China that seceded, that needs to be brought back in, same as they saw Hong Kong. That's an article of faith, at least, for the Chinese leadership. They're not gonna step away from it. But what's happened with Ukraine has made them realize that if they went into Taiwan, these things might happen to them. Does it scare them off? Sure, it may well do for a few years. But if you're China, the one thing you probably realize is that if you still want to achieve that particular sovereign goal of yours, to assimilate Taiwan, you now may as well spend the next five years or six years preparing for that. And that means reducing your reliance on the dollar further. You know, Bring more and more of your tech companies back home and get them to list and be at home start trying to develop your internal capabilities. China is building already one of the world's largest semiconductor factories in China, right? Start trying to go more down the soft power route. you know start doing more and more stuff in Africa. Go after more and more countries that might benefit from Chinese money to build that you know allegiance right And you know start trying to think about what you can do in yuan or in other currencies besides the dollar. Because if you can, not only do you diversify your, you know, revenue base and your trading base, but actually if things go badly wrong, your risks are mitigated that bit further, right? So, you know, that's weakening the dollar system already. Now let's look at something like India, right, which is a bastion democracy, is seen as a very natural partner for the U.S. in Asia. The thing with India is, is that India had a very kind of mixed relationship with the U.S. for the last 30 or 40 years, You know, it's gone through lots of ups and downs. And the reality is they've had a very long-standing relationship with Russia for those 30 or 40 years, right? Which have gone through a few ups and downs. So already here, you have a couple of allies and they're both conflicting with each other. So you've got to now figure out how you do this because the problem you have is that it's not like one of them is enemy number one, the other one's your best friend. No, they're both friends of yours. So you got to pick between friends. That's not an easy start. The second issue is, let's talk about geopolitics. India is not energy independent. It needs energy, and it needs a lot of it. It also has enormous growth ambitions and has enormous growth at the moment. There's a middle class that has rocketed up now to being about 250 million that does not want to return backwards in any sense whatsoever. Any government in there wants to stay in power. That means you have going to deliver growth, and you need cheap energy for that. Now, when you need cheap energy, what are you going to do? Well, you know, you could go out and consume the fuel that you have, but India is actually relatively energy poor, apart from biomass and uranium. It doesn't really have much in the way of, say, oil, for example, or things like that. You could go out and buy energy from other people, right? The problem is the U.S. is a long way away. Um, Russia is much nearer, and Russia historically has supplied you with tons and tons of stuff. By the way, so is Iran, right? So if you're in India, I mean, this is the problem. This is where you are now starting to Think about the diplomatic aspects, the geopolitical aspects of this, which is that you need to figure out, you know, how you deal with Russia, because you can't do the whole kind of, you know what, you guys are terrible, I'm walking away from you. You need these guys as well for energy purposes. Does that mean that you perhaps, you know, still buy some stuff from Russia? Do you not? You know, do you decide to, you know, participate with Russia in a system that is outside the dollar because the Russians don't want to be paid in dollars anymore? Right? I and mean, this is real problems for India. If you take Europe, by the way, Europe has the same issues now. I mean Germany is, you know, become, I think, you know, in a sense the in the naughty corner in Europe because they still won't come make a decision on Russian oil and gas, right? But the problem is forty percent of the energy comes from there the inflation's running very high. It's being driven mostly by energy. If Russian gas is cut off to Germany, the impact on their economic growth, not to mention the industrial sector, is gonna be phenomenally high, right? And uh, the, the Germans have this kind of ridiculous thing going on right now, where on one hand, they want to send weapons to the Ukrainians and support them politically through Europe and so on. On the other hand, they're happily buying gas from the Russians, right? I mean, the, the issue is they're trying to do both sides at once and then that's probably just annoying both sides even further, you know? So I think I think my, my only point is that these things are all going to weaken the dollar over time. You know, what you're seeing, I suspect at the moment is the emergence actually more of a multipolar world. I don't think there's a dominant currency anymore. I think there's a multipolar world that's emerging where you will have the Yuan, you will have the dollar, and you will probably have the Euro somewhere in the middle. Um, and then the Euro itself, is not immune from this. So leaving aside Russia, if you think about Iran, Iran's been an interesting case in point where the Europeans have been very, very focused on a diplomatic solution to the Iranian problem, whereas the US, particularly under Donald Trump, chose to withdraw from the whole kind of peace talks and are now trying to go back into it. The Europeans chose to remain engaged. And when the US then introduced lots and lots of sanctions on Iran, the Europeans have been trying very hard to find ways of coming up with systems that get around the sanctions so that they can still engage with Iran and not cut their own companies out the loop, have them fall foul because most of their companies in the globalized world are multinational, right? So they are, of course, going to be worried about, you know, the US coming after them. And so, you know, again, that what the Europeans were doing with Iran was yet another weakening of a dollar system because you're trying to circumvent. And I think, My only point here is is that with a lot of, with these things that ultimately have great power embedded within them, you never want to use them too often because if you do, you make people realize the problems with being in that system. And then once they realize that, then people slowly start to move further away from that system. And they don't necessarily do it tomorrow and they don't do it in a year's time, but they start trying to reduce their reliance on that system. And the more they do that, the harder it becomes. I mean, I don't know to what extent politicians have really thought through where Ukraine-Russia goes. You know, I mean, it's all very well cutting Russia out of the SWIFT now the financial system, but at some point, you're going to need to send some sort of diplomats over to Russia to talk and to figure out some sort of, you know, solution. That solution will have to be acceptable to the West and to Russia, right? Mm. That means the solution is not going to be something that either side likes. Both sides are going to have to compromise. I and mean, this is the art of compromise, something which you know we've lost in most places over the last few years. And, and this is the problem because you won't have a world where Russia decides to vacate Ukraine and walk away. If at best, they keep some part of Ukraine and walk away from the rest. The Ukrainians won't accept that. They'll want security guarantees. I mean, what, do, what are you gonna do with all of this? Because you don't want Russia to completely exit the global system either. Because if it does, then you have no power over them at all.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows, you know it, by word of mouth. Bob's book, Money Mania, Booms, Panics, and Busts can be bought online, and I will also include a link in the show notes for you to peruse. Now, my biggest takeaway from this conversation is how the US has, in effect, had a dollar-based empire since World War II. Uh, It's given us enormous borrowing power, the ability to shape geopolitics, but it's also come at the expense of stability at home and abroad. And as Bob mentioned, the rise of populist politicians interested in disrupting the status quo came from people being left out of the growth that occurred during the last two to three decades of globalization and the increasing wealth disparities that came about as the Fed continued to inject dollars into the economy and inflate asset prices. And we're seeing a number of external and internal forces coalesce today. So for example, inflation at home could fuel recession and it could fuel political unrest and it could potentially make room for a second Trump presidency or another candidate who's equally willing to withdraw from the multilateral alliances that created the last 70 years of stability, but also that have been used as a weapon against Russia. Now, foreign governments are also going to need to make hard decisions about whether remaining in the dollar-based empire comes at too high a political cost at home. Now, the U.S. and other wealthy nations are running out of ways to borrow our way out of this problem. And China's lending to other nations gives hints that they're building a currency empire of their own. And what I'm wondering in all this is, did the U.S. merely inherit the colonial empires of the pre-World War I era and its subjects in the developing world? Because as we talked about at the very beginning really that period between World War I and World War II represented an end to the physical colonial imperial model and the coronation of the dollar as the imperial currency, and maybe we're seeing a decolonization 2.0 in all this. Now, second point, that was just the first point, folks, so hang on second point, and this is something we always come back to, is we can't control these outcomes, but we can build a government that's more stable and makes better decisions. And our current electoral system will fuel instability by catering to the most partisan. And those voices are only going to get more extreme as times get tougher. And we need to dismantle this if we're going to be able to weather the storm. If we don't, we're going to continue to be led by a series of demagogues who govern by distraction via racial, religious, and class grievances, as opposed to by policy. One last note. In these conversations, I've come to the realization that economies are simply raw materials plus work, or work equaling people. And money is simply the way that we divide these assets up. And this is an idea that we are going to be exploring in upcoming episodes so, I hope you're not ready to jump off the money train just yet. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Buh-bye.